So, welcome to the worlds of M.W. Lewis. Today's show will delve deeply into two of my worlds. The world of Woe World, the Sword of Cassanta, with a reading uh, that will introduce you to uh, a major characters in, in the book. And, and hopefully the uh, three, three book series that I, I hope I eventually complete. And then I'll do a reading from the World of Greyhawk campaign that I'm running on Friday nights, every other Friday night, with a bunch of uh, luminaries from the Grog, the Grog Talk, GrogCon world on Discord and and uh, podcast and actual convention, which I am going to be going to at the end of September. And I've actually uh, uh, volunteered to to run a game there, so I'm looking forward to that. My second con ever, and my the first time running a game at one. Uh, and sometime before the end of this month, I will finish my review of DaveCon, which was my virgin con, my virgin convention that I went to back in April. I did review, uh, I did a part one review of the, my first uh, day and a half at the con and would like to finish up that review uh, for the show. Um but anyway, it's mid-August. Uh, I went just uh, this last week to pick up my son, the jazz man from uh, Jazz Reverb, I should say, from Boston, where he was for five weeks following our wonderful trip to Italy uh, at the begin at the end of June, uh, first couple days of July. And uh, I really was reflecting this weekend that this year, I, I, I wonder how many of my listeners feel the same way, but this year is... Um, just flying by. I mean, uh, make it stop. Put on the brakes. Uh, it just seems like I was recording my first podcast almost a year ago, uh, just yesterday. And lo and behold, we're almost done another year. So uh, my son has one more year left of school, and then uh, I'll have all the time I need to po- record podcasts, run games, and write books in just uh, you know nine short months or ten short months so uh make it make it slow down i don't, I don't know if there's a way to do it there, there are no magic holes we can jump through to go back in time or anything so for this show enjoy the reading from uh the sword of Cassanta and the adventure in greyhawk um i think it's a Two enjoyable readings, but uh, that's for you to decide, not for me. One last mention, though. Well, I'm going to hit it in the conclusion. Uh, Hang in there for the conclusion. I'm going to talk about what's going on Monday night, a momentous night this coming Monday night. With that, let's get to the readings. So it has been quite some time since we last visited my adventure in the Sword of Cassanta. I'm moving this book forward. I have over 150,000 words written uh, that I wrote primarily between 2018 and ended sometime in 2021 with a a complete rewrite of the first chapter. And then I did get COVID last fall. Uh, well, really, end of summer and into the fall, and that kind of sucked the life out of me. And uh, so now I'm back at it. I've been uh, auditioning some copy editors and reading some of the book here on the podcast. And uh, I'm going to be trying to find a few good uh, kind of reviewers, kind of pre-publishing reviewers to take a look at the book, too. So I'm trying to figure out if I should do that before I pay 
almost three thousand dollars for copy edit and then move forward with the cover and then put it self-publish it or have someone look at it first so um that's where i am with the book but i was just looking at some of it uh just this morning and and decided it's time to add another segment of the sword of Cassanta uh to the podcast and in today's reading from it we are going to learn about the elves of woe world the world that this uh story takes place one of the many worlds inside my head so let us begin with the first uh appearance of elves zodikos casually rode her white pony along the narrow dirt path cut between green fields organized into neat long rows of various food crops the air danced sprightly on her exposed skin, cooling her on this cloudless day, warmed by the suns resting at their daily apex in the azure sky. As she gently bounced in rhythm with the pony, she studied the geometric fields and sighed. Humans, like the dwarves, were builders and shapers. The world as it existed never satisfactory enough for either race. She thought how proud the owner of this bountiful farm must be of the work here, and she knew they certainly worked hard. Humans ate much more than her own kind, diminutive as the elves were in comparison, so it was normal for them to cultivate large tracts of land in order to, to survive. It was the way of woe world, she knew. As she and her entourage ventured further past large iron gates, simply wrought and beset in neatly stacked stone posts, she observed the human workers forget about their various mundane tasks to gape back at her. She could feel their all. Most humans never encountered elves, particularly in sparsely, the sparsely populated hinterlands. Unlike humans with their white, tan, and black skins that darkened in the suns, and their straight or curly blonde, brown, and black hair, elven skin was various shades of green and brown, and their tangled hair was of similar colors. Less common was the pale white and hairless features of the rare ice elves of the far north. The bluish-green scaly skin and thick green hair of the water elves and the black skin and long straw-colored hair of the rare and ancient forest tribes of the far southern islands if not for their peculiar coloring the elves would look like children to the untrained human eye naked girls hopping along atop small ponies bareback without reins or barding their silk riding capes float floating gently in the breeze behind them a long, sheer purple silk cape floated behind Zodikos's olive green skin as she rode in the middle of her group. Ahead of her, Mientaz rode. Her bright green skin covered in diamond dust sparkled in the sun as her pony trotted lightly along. Her sheer black cape signified her role as protector of the group. To Zodikos's left rode Al Ada. On a mottled gray pony with her deep brown skin and dark green hair and a short blue cape adorning her shoulders. To Zodikos's left rode Al Ida. On a mottled gray pony with her deep brown skin and dark green hair and a short blue cape adorning her shoulders. On the right rode El Pida with mossy green skin and hair on a brown pony and a sky blue cape. 
completing the diamond formation in the rear rode capeless Lig Ea, all russet brown from hair to toe on her wheat-colored mare. The five elves paid no mind to the armed guards who trailed them at a distance on horseback, while the ponies could outpace a human horse thanks to elven magic, they rode them slowly to allow the humans to keep pace. Armed only with their magic, which, which was strong and fearsome by human standards, elves did not use weapons. Humans were most vulnerable to elven charms. Men, in particular, were easiest as they could be lured into an elven dance circle, seeing instead of the little green and brown imps, fair and beautiful maidens. When elves felt particularly devilish, they could entice a man into laying with them, and even worse, trapping him in their circle for years. Though most humans did not believe this really ever happened, there were many legends told to children about this very thing, the most famous being the one about the Roman Nia-Ian general, who disappeared in the elven forest, only to reappear twenty years later missing a war between Romania and Amaranth. Zodikos considered using a charm before approaching the humans, but understanding the two they sought had spent considerable time with elves not too long ago, her elven pride took over and she chose against changing their appearance. She grinned at the jack slack jaws and furtive looks. Following the twisting road, they emerged from the fields and passed by small human buildings, some for work, some for animals, and others, no doubt, for the humans themselves. And then finally, the road straightened and descended toward a larger home, undoubtedly for the masters of this estate. The human vanity always loved their large manors and castles and towers. She spoke it aloud, though the elves could communicate telekinetically. She voiced this partly to emphasize her disdain, but partly to get her voice ready. For elves refrained from speaking telekinetically with humans whenever possible. Her companions laughed. The world is never good enough. Al-Ada said this loudly and in man-tongue. The rest of the elf maidens laughed aloud. Nerves already frayed, their escorts, who had moved much closer as they neared the manor house, looked even more troubled. Elves were dangerous. Let us not scare these big men, sisters. Elpida spent a lot of time traveling in human communities. She found them fascinating. Most of the time, she used charms to appear human herself. She knew how fearful they were. She worried that war was indeed on the horizon. She couldn't countenance further provocations. In Elvish and without sound, me and Taz interjected, Mind not these men. They reek of fear as usual. So that's our first real glimpse in the novel about uh, Into the World of the Elves. The elves are going to play a central role in the story, as the return of the Sword of Santa means nothing but open warfare between men and elves, for the sword had been forged thousands of years before to help mankind fight back the elves and claim lands for themselves. It was a dark time for the elves, and the return of the sword is very unsettling to them. And as the story unfolds, we will see how they react to this provocation. And that's the reading from The Sword of Cassanta for this episode. I hope you enjoyed it.
And now a session update from my Friday night World of Greyhawk campaign. This game's been going on since before uh, the Christmas holidays of 2021, and it continues. We meet every other week, but we've had a lot of missed sessions. So the, the players are moving along pretty slowly. We began the game in um, Mormog, which I believe is in the realm of the Sea Barons. And they crossed the sea there and ended up in Saltmarsh, where we are running the U1 uh, Sinister Secret of Saltmarsh. But in between uh, the first part of that module and the second part, the party uh, went on a mini-adventure and uh, were infected with lycanthropy. Uh, and they managed to survive. So they went uh, east along the coastal road to the city of Seaton. And there they were able to uh, scrounge up enough money to uh, cure uh, the, the, the lycanthropy disease at the, at the church there. Um, so while they were there, uh, there was some leveling up taking place. And during this time, the uh, adventurers got themselves into some trouble. They went to the tower of the magic user in Seton. His name was Severus. And they asked if they could buy some scrolls from him. And they did not have enough coin left after all the leveling up. Uh, so Severus gave them a mission. And the mission was to go to a jeweler store and steal three diamonds for him. Which the party, which three of the people in the party agreed to do. The magic user, Ter Terran. The thief magic user, Elf, Manos. And the really great uh, chaotic neutral... Uh, cleric of uh, Tritherian, Argo. Uh, Oak, the druid, uh, said he would have nothing to do with this caper and stayed back at the end. And Owen, the uh, lawful good, I think he's lawful good fighter, and he's quite the ladies' man, too. He said he would go and stand nearby just in case the companions were under threat of being harmed, but otherwise would not participate in the heist. So off they went and they conducted the heist and it, it was probably a little too easy. Maybe the DM messed up and made it too easy, but they got away with the diamonds and, and also some jewels. Uh, then this next session, uh, most of our players couldn't play except for the Sean who plays Manos. He's also in my Monday night AD&D game. And Brian who plays uh, Taryn, the magic user. They wanted to have a session. I said, all right, yeah, I wanted to play too. So I came up with a, a little side adventure for them and them only. And I wanted to make it so it wouldn't be too con consequential because, you know, the other players weren't weren't there. So I decided to use the dungeon randomizer and come up with this little adventure. It just had been some stuff I'd been thinking about that day at work with these guys and uh uh, Manos had used Find Familiar and had a hawk, and I was trying to incorporate the hawk's skills with his keen eyesight, and of course the hawk would always be hungry and wanting to eat. So I don't know, I just came up with this crazy session, and here it is. I'm going to give the session description, kindly written by Sean. I made some light edits to make it a little more readable for the podcast, and a little, maybe a little shorter. Uh, but I do appreciate Sean writing this up. It was very good. This was from July 15th, just about a month ago. 
And the session description is titled Tarin and Manus's Wondrous Adventure. The racket of the hue and cry contrasted starkly with the otherwise silent night streets of Seton. Yet the participants of the heist returned safely to their inn and found an inact found it inactive for the night. Even the night barman was dozing off. He was actually a watchman, not a barman. So the group moved unobserved back to their rooms. Manos and Taryn went back to the room they shared with Oak and climbed into their beds. However, it was not to be a restful night. Looking out the window, Hubert the Hawk communicated to Manos that he spied a white rabbit standing on the street below. But not any white rabbit. This one had a top hat, a monocle, and a cane. Manus informed Taryn of this, and they both went to the window to see. Sure, of no, sure enough, it was just as Hubert described. Manos waved at it, and the rabbit waved back. They then retreated back to their beds, not sure what, what this was all about. But soon, the rabbit started throwing stones at the inn wall near their window. Fearing someone would wake up, they went downstairs. On their way down, they woke the sleeping barman. The hue and uh, watchman, really. The hue and cry continued to echo down the streets outside. So Taryn quickly asked the watchman about what all the racket was, as a way to cover for why they were walking down the steps this late at night. The watchman stated that he did not know what the commotion was. So Taryn and Mano said they were stepping outside for some fresh air and to see if they could discover what it was all about. Once outside, the rabbit, who they could now see was also wearing a waistcoat, addressed them and asked if they were Taryn and Manos who had the goods. He clarified that he meant the Diamonds Three. The rabbit also implied he worked for the wizard Severus, but this is a this is my side note here. This is just the perception of the players. The the rabbit did not say that at all to them. So that was kind of interesting that 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 they were easily uh, that they were easily convinced to believe believe that, although the rabbit never even acknowledged he knew the wizard Severus. So I find that interesting, the perception of the players there. But continuing on, the rabbit stated that Taryn and Manos need to follow him, as they were already going to be late. So they followed the rabbit through alleys and streets and made their way to the city wall. There, the rabbit started looking for something in the grass. Eventually, eventually he found the right spot, pulled his cane over his right shoulder like a golf club, and sent a tuft of grass about 30 yards, with only a slight hook to the right. There now sat a hole. Stating that this was the way, he jumped in. After pondering their situation for a moment, Manus called Hubert to him, and down the rabbit hole they went. The three felt tingling and realized that they were passing through some sort of magical portal. When they emerged, they were in a square room with a set of stairs leading up. There were also torches on the wall. Taryn grabbed the torch and they began to search for the white rabbit who was nowhere to be seen. And from here on, I was using the random dungeon generator uh, for this adventure. About halfway up the stairs, there was a metal box on the stairs. Now completely confused and pondering the wisdom of following strange rabbits in the holes, Manos was not feeling very trusting and checked it for traps. Finding none, he picked it up. Inside the box was a circle of dark fa fabric. Lifting it out of the box, Taryn pushed the center of it, popping out the top of the hat. Taryn then reached inside the hat and pulled out a rabbit. In Manos' mind, he thought, oh no, not another one. 
However, this appeared to be a normal rabbit, except for the charm it wore around its neck. Taryn removed it and inspected it. It was silver and had an inscription that read, He who wears this charm shall fight with great might. Taryn kept the charm, but put the rabbit back in the hat and the hat back in the box. Then they continued up the stairs. At the top, there was a wooden door on the right. No other passageways. Searching the landing, Manos found a secret door on the opposite wall. After checking both doors for traps and finding none, they opened the secret door. It led to a long rectangular room with a table in its center and a candelabra on top of it. Seated around were a brown hare, a mouse, a puppy, and the white rabbit they had been looking for. It appeared that they were engaging in a game of cards. The rabbit told them that they were late and to take a seat. It was then that Manos noticed a grinning smile on one of the chairs as it belonged to a large invisible cat. There were also cards in front of that chair. The mouse, upon seeing Hubert, took his cards and ran off into a hole in the wall. The rabbit asked if they had the charm and decided that the two victims, or adventurers, would play a high card, a high card to see who got the charm. Taryn won, so put on the charm around his neck, and polymorphed into a powerful warrior clad in plate mail and wielding, wielding a fearsome two-handed sword. Taryn also had the urge to change his name to Mock Turtle, but did not express this. The rabbit then directed them to hurry to the other door, as they were already late. The two found the wooden door across the hall stuck. However, Taryn, in his new fighter body, found no problem opening it, as he now had an 18-95 strength. They found a square room with glowing crystals on the walls, close to the ceiling, that radiated a white light. <clears throat> in the center of the room were six gnolls. The gnolls charged, as did Taryn Mock. From now on, he's going to be named Taryn Mock, because he, he secretly wants to call himself Mock Turtle. Manus chose the wiser side of Valor, stayed back, and attacked with his sling, hitting one squarely in the head. Taryn was hit by one of the gnoll's spears, but he quickly returned the favor and cleaved through the offending creature. It seemed that Taryn Mock was much more formidable than Taryn himself. Manus was also stabbed by a gnoll's spear. He took it much harder than Taryn Mock did. Manus then backed out of the room, hoping to get an advantage of fighting through a bottleneck. Taryn Mock continued fighting the others, easily dispatching another knoll, but was on the receiving end of two more knoll hits. They were not enough to even slow him one bit, as he was a level 8 fighter with 60, 56 hit points. Using his second attack, Taryn Mock took out another of the knoll attackers. At this point, all of the knolls were focused on Taryn Mock. Manos saw his chance. Taryn viciously attacked another knoll, sending it into the great beyond as it tried to run past him. As he did, Manos crept up behind one of the one with great skill, plunged his short sword into its back, taking the vile creature down. The remaining knoll attempted to run away through a door on the right wall, and though Taryn Mock tried to intercept it, it was able to get away. It ran down the stairs on the other side. Manos, never one to be wasteful, searched through the bodies, finding 45 gold pieces on the dead knolls. He then did a quick search and did not find any secret doors in the room. He decided he wanted to remove some of the glowing crystals from the wall, one on each wall, uh, but they were too high, even with Taryn Mock's help. The two decided to go back and consult the rabbit to try and find out what was going on, with the threat of feeding him to Hubert, if necessary. 
However, the other room was gone, as was the secret door. Upon returning to the knoll room, the crystals now glowed blue, and the door had moved to the far wall. Seeing no other choice, they opened that door to reveal a passageway that moved forward for a bit, then turned to the right. Onward, they pressed. After turning right, the passageway eventually came to a T. Manus attempted to hear noise and heard nothing, so the two decided to go to the right. After about 20 feet, there were stairs leading up. At the top of the stairs was a door. The cautious Manos could find no traps on the door, nor could he hear any noise coming through. Both Taran and Mock and Manos tried to force open the door, but it was stuck. So Taran and Mock took a quick breather and then tried again. They were able to gain entry. Inside was another square room that looked very familiar to the one they fought the Knolls. Only this time, the crystals on the wall were glowing yellow. Inspecting the room, the two thought they found bloodstains on the floor, but could not be sure. Searching for secret doors, the two found nothing, so they returned the way they came back to the T and went in the opposite direction. Moving down the left branch, the corridor ended with a door on the left. Manus went through his routine of checks and listening, but came up with nothing. A search also revealed no secret doors in the hallway. Taran Mach forced open the stuck door, and it opened into a small square room. This room did not have the familiar glowing crystals. However, Manus's elven eyes did spy a concealed door directly across from the wooden door. After checking and listening, the two opened the door. Beyond was a large room with the left wall circling around and the right wall angling away from the door. The room would end up being shaped like a baseball field with the door at the, at the corner of left field. Of course, the adventurers did not know that yet. There was a smell of smoke in the air, and it was very humid. Moving in and to the right, the two spied a fountain with a number of humanoid creatures around it. They also noticed a door on the right wall, but did not have time to investigate it as they were set upon by 16 hobgoblins and the knoll who got away previously. <laughs> Deciding that they were outmatched, the two turned to run for their lives. They went back through the door... Manus made it easily. However, Taran Mach, being much slower in his armor, was attacked before he cleared the threshold, suffering some severe damage. After Taran passed through, Manus let his burning hand spell loose before slamming the door shut. The two held the door as the hobgoblins pressed against it. As they were holding it, the mouse appeared out of a hole in the wall, carrying a box, which had dropped for them. It then pointed back towards the door and ran back into the hole. Manus recovered the box as Taran Mach held the door. Inside was a vial of blue liquid and a playing card. Manus and Taran Mach shared the vial and felt healing energy move through them. Upon inspecting the card, it appeared to be the Jack of Diamonds, but three of the diamonds were missing off the card. With no idea what this meant or what had put them in this God's forsaken hole, the two contemplated their next move. Then Manus had an idea. Manus called out, uh, in Hobgoblin, offering them a bribe. He offered the 45 gold pieces they had recovered from the Knolls, plus the four extra gems he had recovered from Ignatius' basement. That was the jeweler they had robbed earlier that night. He heard the Knoll saying that that was gold taken from his fallen brothers, but the Hobgoblins told him to shut up. He was, after all, just a stupid Knoll. The Hobgoblins countered with a request to sweeten the bribe, and the two increased it and Taran and Manus agreed to increase it, increase it to 65 gold pieces. 
much to the dissatisfaction of the knoll. Suddenly there were sounds of arguing and metal upon metal, and then the annoying complaining of the knolls stopped. The hobgoblins agreed with one condition. The big guy would have to fight their big guy to the death. If Taran Mach won, they would take the bribe and let the adventurers go. If he did not, Manos was forfeit as well, and they would have Hawk stew that night. Seeing no way, other way out, the two adventurers agreed. The door was open, and the hobgoblins escorted the adventurers past the body of the dead knoll back to the fountain, where they instructed Manos to sit. Then they went to get their big guy, which was an ogre armed with a spear. Taran Mach and the ogre closed the distance, and the fight was on. Taran Mach made the first attack, cutting the ogre deeply, but not bringing it down. The ogre followed with two strikes of his spear, both of which missed. However, they had given Taran Mach... Th th those missed blows gave Taran Mach a chance to find his opening. And with a great thrust and a heroic cry, he shoved his two-handed sword clear through the ogre's chest, spraying blood out the other side. The body fell backwards, and Taran Mach confidently put his foot on its chest and withdrew his deadly deposit. The hobgoblins were shocked. A few ran in fear, yet they would honor their agreement. After all of this, Manos was thirsty, so he took a drink out of the fountain and promptly disappeared. Taran Mach, seeing his companion vanish, quickly ran to the fountain and did the same. Both appeared in a small room with a door. And here, we're just assuming Hubert was sitting on, on Manus's shoulder. Otherwise, the hawk didn't make it through. So we kind of lost track of, of him. And that's not unusual in games to, to lose track of the familiars. But when, whenever they're not really doing anything, we you know you just assume he was sitting on his shoulder. Probably fearful of the hobgoblins that had previously said they wanted to eat him. Both of them appeared in a small room with a door. Inside that room was a small man. On, on their side of the door. The door was shut. The small man was about the size of a gnome. He wore a tall top hat and a cup of tea and had a cup of tea and a bit of toast. There was a piece of paper stuck in the hat band with the number on it. Ten over six, if you are interested. About time, he said. You're late. Do you understand now? After a time, when Taryn in particular tried to pry information from the man in the hat, the two finally caught on. The next time he asked, do you understand now? They just said yes, though neither had any idea what was going on. The man was satisfied and took back the charm, changing Taryn back to himself. Then he left the toast for them and disappeared. Taryn and Manos split the toast and felt healing energy again move through them. Past the door, which opened easily, the two found themselves in a hot, humid cavern. Moving toward the center, they became aware of a large breathing sound. Through the steam, made out, they made out the outline of a large mound, and from behind it, something moved, causing parts of the mound to cascade in its wake, making clanking and tinking sounds. Treasure. Taryn ventured the, a question. Sir, is that you? And the large, uh, a large gold dragon raised its head. Sir, it boomed. I am not used to being called that. What do you have for me? Here, Taryn and Manos, this is DM aside here, Taryn and Manos still believe this has something to do with the wizard Severus. The adventurers offered the dragon the three diamonds. 
Then, before them, the dragon took the form of an old man with a long beard. He took the diamonds and the playing card and asked if the two were hurt. Upon learning that they were, he rummaged through his possessions and returned with a scroll, saying they could have someone read it to them and they would be healed. He also handed back the playing card, which now had all four diamonds on it, and told them to give it to the one who sent them. The dragon man introduced himself as Lyolus. Lyolus asked where the two were from and did not recognize any of the names of the cities or countries they mentioned. He did recognize the name O'Earth, though it was clear to them that he was not from O'Earth. And he asked them to draw a map out in the sand so that he could send them back. Taryn and Manos promptly did so. Lyolus then brought a pair of ruby slippers, which he traded for Manos's boots. He informed them that the slippers would be non-magical once they were gone from his lair. Smelling Taryn's magical ring, Lyolus offered to trade Taryn a robe of the eyes for the ring. Taryn accepted. Lyolus then asked if there was anything else he could do for Manos. Manos asked about the cursed stone he had been carrying since carrying since the manor house in uh, U1, um, the secret of Saltmarsh. And um, Lyolus was able to break the curse and take the stone from him. Lyolus then instructed Manos to put on the slippers for them to hold hands and for Manos to click his heels three times and say there was no place like Seton. Manos did, and he and Taryn and Hubert felt themselves moving through another portal. Appearing outside the gate of Seton at daybreak, Manos removed the ruby slippers, hoping that they might still be valuable, and put them in his pack. Then the adventurers made their way through the gate and to the inn for a much-needed nap. So that was it. That was the crazy side adventure I ran for this group. And I hope you enjoyed the write-up. That's it. I think that's going to be it for this episode. The reading from the um, the Sword of Cassanta and then this session description. That's it's already a long episode. Um, and I'll come back on for a quick uh, uh, conclusion with some words of wisdom. So I hope you enjoyed those readings. I, I did. I, I think uh, uh, they were both rather entertaining, but um, I might be a little biased. That's possible. That's definitely possible. So tomorrow night, Monday night, I'm preparing for a big Monday night. I've canceled Monday night AD&D, which uh, it, 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 it gets canceled during the summer. That happens. People are busy. There's vacations, people traveling. and um, But I'm not canceling it for any of those reasons uh there's an ending coming up this monday night now i don't know how many of my listeners ever watched the breaking bad series and its follow-on series better call saul which is kind of a prequel and a sequel all all at once um but i did i i watched breaking bad i loved breaking bad it was my go-to show in the final not so great years of my marriage. I would be down in the basement, the man cave, watching Breaking Bad, and then a couple years later, Game of Thrones would come on the same night. Uh, while the ex was up in the bedroom watching House Hunters, so that was how uh, our that's how our lives had become. And uh, and then I watched the final few seasons right after all of that stuff ended, all of the divorce, the ugly divorce, and everything. And uh, 
boy, that last episode of Breaking Bad, well, that, that was something, man. That was just really good. And then I was a latecomer to the Sopranos TV series because way back when the Sopranos were on HBO live or in real time, I had young child. My oldest son was young, and I, I we we didn't watch a lot of TV way back then, so we didn't have premium cable channels. I, I watched football. That was about it. So I was a latecomer to The Sopranos, and another one, I just think the last episode, it's a controversial ending, but you will find not many lists ranking TV series finales that do not have the last episode of The Sopranos on the list, um, and it's well-deserved. And Breaking Bad is on that list, too. Very high. Felina is the name of the last episode of Breaking Bad. Uh, I think Made in America is the last episode of The Sopranos. Two, two really great endings. And, and I've been reminiscing, looking over these lists of great finales. And the MASH finale, uh, how easy to forget when, you know, you're not, I wasn't that old when the MASH ended. And I, I kind of forgot how great that finale was. Um, it still ranks as the most viewed uh, episode of a television show ever. I think episode of a television show, not just finale. Uh, it was fantastic. The ending to Cheers. Wow. Another good one. Friends. I don't quite remember the last episode of Friends. I think we kind of stopped watching it by the time that ended. That was back in that period. 2004, I think, Friends ended. That was back in that period. We really weren't watching a lot of TV anymore, just with young kids, busy medical school, all kinds of stuff going on. My ex was a doctor. She was in med school around that time. So it's just a lot of stuff. We'd bought a house. So just not really watching a lot of TV. And that's fine. You know, I got away from TV for a while. Uh, for me, Seinfeld was my favorite show. And after that ended, I kind of stopped watching for really, um, you know, I didn't have the HBO, as I mentioned. So I didn't watch those great shows on HBO. But Breaking Bad brought me back to television. And then we did get HBO. And I started watching the Game of Thrones, and uh, the rest is history. The television has been really fantastic since Breaking Bad, in my opinion. And AMC, give them a lot of credit for taking a chance on a show like Mad Men and then Breaking Bad. So shows like Mad Men and Breaking Bad. Um, and then there's a kind of a gap. You know, Game of uh, Breaking Bad ends, and then a few years later, Game of Thrones end, ended. And not well, we all agree. It's pretty universal. Game of Thrones had a bad ending, um, which is unfortunate. And then comes along this show, Better Call Saul. And, and what's it going to be? Is it going to be like a 30-minute sitcom format? Or what are they going to do with this show? And it, I'm not going to get into it, but if, if you watch it, you know what I'm talking about. And if you haven't watched it, watch it. Go back and watch it. You can stream all of it. But this Monday night, it's coming to the end finally. And while I've had some minor quibbles with the second half of the last season, because they divided it into halves, which is becoming pretty common, um, I have had a few minor quibbles. It's It's been awesome. It's, it's an awesome last season. And I watch it a day late, because I play Monday night AD&D, and this show airs on Monday nights. So I have to record it and watch it on Tuesday nights, which means I have to be super disciplined on Tuesdays not to go on Facebook or look at any of the groups that might be talking about it. But for this Monday night, I canceled AD&D. My younger son, the Jazz Reverb, he's coming here. He's, he was with me for half the weekend. Now he's just went to his mom's just an hour ago. 
He's coming back. He's going to watch the finale with me, and we are going to get either Chinese food or Thai food. We are going to get some Cinnabons. I might get three Cinnabons, maybe four. We'll each eat. We might eat two Cinnabons. Why not? I've been I've been losing weight this summer. Why not put it back on for the fall? And I wish I knew what beer they drank. We don't know what beer Kim and, and Jimmy drank on their balcony, so I'll have some beer for myself. And we are going to just have a little hour and a half Breaking Bad party on Monday night. And I am really looking forward to it and not really looking forward to it because I love the show. I don't feel like the way Better Call Saul was done, you could have done another season or two. And, and I think it's good they're they're ending it after six seasons. I think that's a good formula to end. I like the producer's uh, formula. They're going to have a series. It's going to be a discrete series. It's going to have a beginning, a middle, and they are going to end it. It's just not going to go on forever. This one feels like it could have, it could have been, there could have been another season in my opinion, but they're ending it and it's their ending. They're writing it. It's fantastic. I'm looking forward to it a lot. So if you watch it, haven't watched it, give me some call-ins. If you watch it Monday night, I'd like to hear what your thoughts are, my listeners' thoughts are, and I, I will probably do a review of the episode uh, and put it up next week, and maybe even a review of the whole series because I I, I really liked Better Call Saul a lot. There was a lot of good stuff in it, um, and you know after the first season I wasn't sure I wasn't sure I was going to stick with it, and you know I did, and I'm glad I did. So that's it. That brings an end to today's uh, episode of the Worlds of M W Lewis. I hope you enjoyed the two readings. I hope I've inspired you to get out there and watch some good television like uh, Better Call Saul. I, I hope uh, you uh, are having a lot of fun with your gaming and your minds. And I hope you keep exploring the many worlds that exist in your minds. So have a good rest of August, everyone. Just a quick correction. I was just uh, admiring my handiwork and finally listening to the entire episode. And when I was listening to the reading from the Sword of Cassanta, I realized that uh, sometimes in the book I wrote uh, the elven form of communication as telekinesis. But of course, it, it is telepathy. That's really what I should have said there. And I've made the correction in, in the manuscript today while I was listening to the to the published episode but I just want to add this um, quick addendum or correction to to the episode to let my loyal listeners know that um, I did catch that and I hope you did too because that is an error in the book and uh, it happened a few other places just while I would be typing along really quickly I would uh, muddle I would muddle those two words of course uh, they have similar, kind of psionic abilities but of course they are completely different things so uh i've caught that sorry about that